Welcome to this week's podcast. Sometimes we go through challenges and come out better on the other side. Today, we welcome James Ray, who takes men through extreme challenges in order to build character. James Ray, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thanks, John. Delighted to have you, James. We've been friends for a number of years and uh, I've wanted you on the programme for a while. And you're a reverend. I am, yeah. yeah. And you're a, a curate that's based at a church called Holy Trinity Brompton in London. Yeah, HTB, the Alpha Church. Yeah, I'm a curate there. Yeah, and you're, you don't look the typical reverend. You've got a very unusual, fresh look. Are people surprised when they hear that you're a reverend? Yeah, I mean, this is the face I was born with um, in the hair, so I haven't really done anything too intentional that's not, doesn't feel unnatural to me, but it does seem to feel unnatural for reverends to um, look and be as I am, but I can't really help that because I'm just me. So I do me and then I let everybody else worry about what they're doing. But I think there's something also that there's a story behind that that's refreshing to hear and to see that actually all sorts of people can join in with the great narrative of the faith story. The faith story, especially in the UK, where we have a heritage of a faith journey and a church of the countries, of each of the different countries. And I think that some of that's being lost because we seem to be chucking everything out with an abandonment of those ideas. But actually, some of the things we're throwing away, I think, are hugely valuable. So. I've put my hand up reluctantly to, to join in that narrative, to join in that story and to play my small part. Yes, you, you, both you and your wife um, trained as teachers. You ended up in Switzerland teaching at a school. Tell us about that and at a significant moment there. Yeah, so we um, went to Switzerland as what's called house parents. So we basically had uh, a boarding house of 50 teenage boys. So from 14 to 18, we were their surrogate parents, if you like, and um, we had an assistant with us, but we lived in the house. We, we took our uh, eight-month-old son at the time, who then grew up for five years, um, and then we had another child while we were there, and we were um, blessed enough to have an adopted son, one of the boys, actually. Uh, we became his adopted parents, or I became his adopted father. It was an amazing time, really fantastic environment. Um, living in the Swiss Alps, we had a view over Mont Blanc, across the top of the snow-capped mountains. We lived in a ski resort. I got paid to ski, and we got paid a lot of money because you don't have any outgoings, you're living for free, and also the, the Swiss don't tax you very highly. So we were earning quite a lot, having 19 weeks holidays, skiing for work, um, in this amazing place. And it happens to be one of the most expensive schools in the world, partly I think through the location, but partly through intentionality, it wants to be that. And so we were surrounded by affluence. And what happened, I think uh, day by day, moment by moment, was that affluence started to sort of creep and take root in us. And so the sense of um, having more began to infiltrate. And we were living a beautiful life. We had a boat on a lake and we would go sailing and heli skiing and anything else that you could think of. And one day I remember vividly sitting out on our balcony overlooking Mont Blanc on one of our days off and we'd just been skiing all day. Beautiful, snowy, sunny day. And I'd put our son, we only had one child then, put him to bed. And my wife was somewhere in, in the apartment and I was sitting on a balcony and I had a glass of wine in my hand and it was fine wine that somebody had given us. And I was smoking a Cuban cigar that somebody else had given me. And I was thinking about life and I said as a prayer or as a, as some sort of echo back between me and God, We've done quite well, haven't we? 
Yeah. And it was this, this idea of the combination of him and I was a good combination. And, and as I said that, I had this sense, uh, it was almost like an out-of-body experience, but it wasn't, but it just felt a bit like that, that I could see myself and how silly I looked. And also I had this sense that Jesus was sort of just here with my rucksack of life, all my bits and pieces, all my stuff. And he was sort of there and he just whispered quietly in my ear, is this it? Are we settling here? And I had this deep sense and knowledge that if I said yes, that he was going to get the rucksack out and start unpacking and we were going to make our home here and this was going to be it. But as he asked the question, with the combination of the wine and the cigar and the view, none of which I'd actually um, owned, if you like, it was all um, given or, or, or bolted on. I had this sense of wanting to shake that all off and just say, no, this isn't it. This is not anything like what I hoped for my life. What I hoped for my life was to be in deep community with people, impacting lives. And we were having a small impact in the school and I'm grateful for it, but, but the wealth was rotting us. And I think we were rotting from the inside and, and it was hard to notice, but in that moment I felt it. And I knew that we were being called to come back to the UK and come back into some kind of more um, life-giving life-giving environment, more life-giving action. So I um, threw the, well, I was about to throw this, the wine in the, in, the, in the plant, so I threw the cigar in the fire and I drank the wine because it was a bit too good and kicked the door of our apartment open and said, my wife, we've got to leave. <laughs> and she said, thank goodness. And for about six months, she had this sense that we weren't in the right place. And so we, we resigned, I think, soon after and returned back to the UK. And that was a radical thing because obviously... Um, all appeared to be good, but contentment is being in the will of God. And it was as if the Lord had revealed to you that this isn't the place. I have something better for you. Yeah, it definitely looked good. And a lot of people were questioning what we we're doing. We got offered quite senior roles immediately after. We were quite young already to be doing what we were doing. So people were sort of confused as to surely you're on the career path and you're, it's going all in the right direction you know, earning a hundred and odd thousand pounds a year for doing this and then you're on for more. But for us, it was, there was no, there was no way we were going to go back on that. I knew what I knew. And, and you're right, it, 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 when we're outside of what's good for us, it doesn't feel natural. No. So you came back to England, what did you do? So I came back with high hopes. People then offered us other jobs and I thought I was going to go and set up someone's family office in, and go to Colombia. Someone had applied for my firearms license for Colombia and I was matching my hand luggage with the private jet that I was supposed to go to Colombia in. And then I realised that that whole world I'd been in was falling away like sand and that all these offers were just offers of kindness from people who just wanted to, us to tag along with their life but actually none of it was about us or about what the vision for us was. So then I had a few months where I was unemployed. But if you'd met me in those few months, and I think, I'm sure you and I did meet, I, would, I had all sorts of stories as to what I was doing. I was between jobs, I was waiting for the next thing, I was reviewing my life, I was taking a sabbatical. I would say all sorts of things until after a few weeks, I remember spending two days repairing a bicycle just to cycle around London. And in doing that job, I realized I'm only doing this because I've got nothing else to do. And I've got nothing else to do because I haven't got a job. And I haven't got a job because we gave up our last job to go and do this next great thing. And the next great thing is all falling apart. And so we volunteered at, at our church at Holy Trinity Brompton in London. I remember doing the car parking 
for five services on a Sunday and beginning to wonder if this was it and whether I'd made a big mistake. We were losing money faster. The savings that it brought back was being spent on rent. And I remember crying a lot about being unemployed and, and not being able to really admit that very easily at parties or at whatever. And then also being almost anybody who hinted at a sniff of work, I would almost prostitute myself to them to, oh, yes, 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 I'm, I'm interested. And hating that part of me as well, thinking, what, what are you, why are you so desperate? What are you not able to wait for? And so we end up waiting and we reconciled ourselves to becoming quite poor and quite uh, homeless quite soon. And then I met somebody, we, we'd been asked to, to come do an event, be involved in an event and somebody at that event and in the car driving up there, my wife and I prayed, God, if this is from you, could we meet people here who are for us and that, that something evolve? And sure enough, somebody there remembered something from the past and they invited us actually to come and live near you yes. uh, here to run their charity. And it was all the right fit of all the things that I needed and the things that I enjoyed. And so we've, we were very honoured to have that invitation. Yeah. And, and so often, James, uh, I think of the image of the arrow and the bow. Uh, you have to pull the arrow back for it to go further forward. And in many ways, uh, both you and your wife were pulled back, serving in the community, uh, but pulled back so that you can go further forward. And yeah. now, wh what are you doing now? So now, well, thanks to you, John, because actually you've been pivotal to this whole journey. I remember in that pulling back, you, you talked to me about getting ordained. You talked to me about um, waiting. You talked to me about what's next. And then you introduced me to some people who, who run this organization that I'm involved in now. And I, I run an organization called Extreme Character Challenge. We call it XCC. Uh, we dropped the E from extreme to make the X. And, and can, I, can I just say, James, what happened was I went to Holland uh, on ministry and the person that picked me up and was driving us around and looking after us uh, for the, um, the ministry that we were doing, he told me about the ministry and invited me to take part. And I thought, well, he doesn't really know me. But I said, it's not me. I'm not the right fit. But I said, I know someone who is. And it was you. Yeah. So it was one of those that I ended up going to Holland to meet the guy to introduce to you. Isn't it amazing how yeah. God works? It is amazing. And I'm grateful. And, and, and that guy, Hank, he's it's Hank Storvogel, he's a, an amazing man. And he's been very gracious to me to, to welcome me into the, this movement of, it's an organization where fundamentally the, the primary thing we do is we take men away in the wilderness and we give them a bit of a kick. I say it's like a, an MOT, you know, for your car, you take your car for have a checkup. And it's an MOT for blokes is what I say. It's a, an annual checkup of the mind, the body and the soul. Because I think for men and, and women, of course, as well, but, but for us men, often we don't know what's wrong, but we know something's wrong. And actually, surprisingly, everyone around us seems to know, but we're the last to find out. And if, when we're going to say what's wrong, it might just be something's up, something just doesn't sit well inside of us. For a lot of guys, it could be that there's a sense of loneliness that they're not able to admit. A bit like when I struggled to admit I was unemployed, that there's a sense by which these things are quite tough to discuss. Also, for some guys, they'll be trapped in bad habits, maybe drinking too much, maybe watching inappropriate things online. Um, and it's hard to get out of that, and it's hard to find a space where you can recalibrate and look at that and in my experience all my life the outdoors the wilderness has been a great place of learning a great place a great teacher 
And I think it's set up like that. Uh, Henry Nouwen says that God's first expression, first communication was the created world of nature. That, that it's the first way he speaks so unfiltered. From a, ch a child, I've always felt that God's voice has been overlaid by our voices, by others' opinions, others' perspectives, others' translations. And in some ways that can be helpful, but in other ways it can be unhelpful. And when we go outside and when we look at nature, when we look at a sunset or a raging storm over a sea, we can just sense some majesty. They say, don't they, the word is numinous. There's a numinous experience, a spiritual experience that happens in those moments. And when we're inside in our air-conditioned climate control buildings, we're shut off from those experiences. And then lo and behold, we say after a while, I don't feel connected. I don't feel that I can find God or know God. I've prayed and nothing's happened. But I think when you're out under the stars or you're out in a driving rainstorm, the prayers become sharper and the mind becomes focused. And suddenly your phrase, what's the main thing, remains the main thing and comes up and says, this is what it is. And that's what we do with 200 men at a time, thousands of men a year, uh, brave men who step into a challenge of the unknown. Okay, right, we want more details, right. So you invite men for a long weekend in the wilderness. Okay, just to explain. So you're right, it starts Thursday night normally and it's a mystery because the definition of the word adventure is uh, an activity with an uncertain outcome. So if we try to make it certain, we remove adventure. So if you want to have an adventure, you just need to go outside with no idea what you're about to do next and just follow the next thought. And that becomes an adventure. If I said to you now, let's go for a four mile walk in exactly a straight line, we're going to have an adventure because we're going to have to climb people's gardens, cross roads where we shouldn't, walk through shops and out the back door. But it could be exciting. And in the wild, um, there's multiple possibilities of adventure, but of course there's another thing. I, we can't control the environment anyway. So even if I try to guarantee to people that this is what's about to happen, it might not. So the best thing we can do is say to them, can you trust the process? Can you come on an adventure that's gonna inspire you physically and really challenge you physically to, to test your body again in ways that are, I think, thrilling, but also your mind and your soul your morals, your values. Why is it important to be who you are? Why are you trying to be this man? Who is it that's spoken that over you? Or why have you spoken that over yourself? And is it still important? But also the soul element is just, is there a God? And is he out here? And is he worth finding? Do you, are you sure he's there? In which case, let's go and reaffirm that. Some men come absolutely certain they believe in God, but when they get cold and hungry, they start to become like somebody who would never, you would never have imagined would have met God. And other people who've never met God, a guy came uh, two weeks ago and says on the top of a mountain, he didn't know what was happening to him, but he had a deep sense of warmth and healing inside him. And as he looked up, he realized it was God. And he's, he's not been the same since. He's still messaged me this morning. He has an alarm clock, which is the, our call, and it wakes him up and he's on his journey. So people are finding God in, in the most remarkable ways. But also, I think, alongside that, finding themselves, finding themselves and not in a, a loose, airy-fairy way, in a very clear, tangible way. This is who I am, rather like my balcony experience. Are we done here? No, I'm not done here. This is not the life that I wanted, and I've slipped into it. I'm stuck with my mortgage and my cars and my habits and my behaviours, and I don't want them, and I want to stop. And so that's the challenge that we take men on. And we populate it with various conversations, really. Uh, well, t well, tell us, run through, wh where do you rendezvous on a Thursday? 
So the, the mystery is that we, we never tell anybody. But what we say is that... What, what do you mean? How do they know where to We be? just say about two days before, here's the location. So they'll know it's the generic area because they need to work out how to get there. So say it's Scotland or Wales or Dartmoor, somewhere in, in the country where nobody else is. That's what we want. Somewhere where there's no other people, no distractions. So you don't actually tell them till two days before. And then we say your exact location's here. And the reason we don't is because some men genuinely go and find the location and pre-recce it. They scout it out. And so they go and check out where would I be? What am I? Well, of course, all they're doing is regathering control away from the mystery back into certainty. So we don't really want people to be certain. No. We want them to be uncertain. So we just say we don't tell you, but it's somewhere here. Somewhere here. Just so, get within this area. So then, then Thursday they all gather. They gather. Often around two hundred. Two hundred guys, yeah. Something yeah, like two hundred, right? And then what happens then? So then we have this adventure where we challenge them with just the realities of life, of their own lives. And we go on a, a long journey. They have to have a rucksack with the, all the kit they need to survive on their back. And we split them to small teams, often with guys they, uh, from around where they might uh, live, so postcode area, or they might have brought one or two friends. Some people come and say, I absolutely don't want to meet anybody I know. I've got some stuff I want to deal with that I can't confess to anybody. Fine, they can go uh, on their own. But often people say, I don't really know anyone, but I'm really happy to be with people. So they end up with a small group. And then the mystery starts to become uh, more real as we go off. And, and over that journey, over the course of the next few hours and days, we, we just spend time having hard conversations, but in a way that seems natural and easy. What, as people are walking? As they're walking, as they're stopping, as they're thinking, as they're sleeping, the whole thing is, uh, is set up and designed to be uh, an undoing and unraveling. And so I guess, again, the questions you're asking, the reason I'm being cagey is like, if I take my car to the garage and say, right, so what are you gonna do? You're gonna lift the bonnet, then what are you gonna do? They're just gonna say, just bring your car, Give us the keys yes. and you stand there and trust us. We yes. know what we're doing and we'll yes. do it. And I think it's a bit like that for us. And we look and some people might need their oil filter changing. Now, I don't know anything about cars. So whenever someone says that to me, I think, okay. And so we just have a look at the oil filter or the fan belt or the tires need pumping up, whatever it might be. But what we offer is an experience where all of that, so far, all the experiences can be can be accommodated. So we've had people who've, who've come back, who've broken off uh, their compulsive addiction to alcohol or drugs or porn. We've had people who've been physically healed. We've had people who've been able to forgive parents who've abandoned them from a lot longer. We've had men who've been able to confess that they've abandoned children. We've had men who've come back determined to rescue their marriage, not by um, dominating or running their household, but by serving in their household. We've had people, many, 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 in fact, almost everybody will meet God in a way that's unbelievably unique to them and powerful and no way could we have orchestrated. And then along the journey, you speak to them and you do some teaching and you input. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But it's not like going to a conference no. where it's like, oh, nine o'clock, no. it's the first meeting. No. A lot of it's more spontaneous. It's all spontaneous. And I think, I don't know if I teach anything or we just speak about the things that come up that are real. And we try to um, demonstrate those in a way that feels natural in the environment. So sometimes we've done things where we've asked people to carry a rock that means something to them. And then we've just talked about what burdens we're carrying and, and, and what it's like to carry an extra weight. Sometimes we've asked people to, um, to walk a long distance and then realize that in that walking, actually there's a purging of, of the mind. Sometimes we, we ask people to bring clothes to get wet because sometimes they get wet. And one of our biggest fears most of the time is please don't get me wet. 
And then you realize when you're wet, it's still okay. And then actually a couple of days later, you've forgotten that moment. It can be freezing cold. We try and go at times of year where it's not too nice because it's not a holiday camp and it's not a, a kind of, um, you know, it's not a camping trip. And so sometimes that wild weather on top of a mountain in a raging storm can be very frightening for people. But that's when they realize the limitations of themselves. And we have people who come from powerful jobs realizing that in those moments, they've, within 24 hours, they've been broken. We've had homeless men making lawyers cups of tea in their tent while the lawyer, lawyer shivers and shakes and says he can't get out, while the homeless person says, you can, you can do this. We've had police officers and ex-offenders sharing tents and laughing. We've had a father and son combination who the, the, the father was abusive to his son for many years and now they've through this experience actually they've been able to reconcile and a few months ago I heard them in a tent giggling as they let each other's air, air bed down but as they just reconnect and rebond in a way that I think you can only do in the outside because there is no one's listening and there are no walls and there's no limitations as to what can happen. So you, you've done this for how many years? Uh, five or six years. And how many men have gone through this? Thousands. I mean, I'm, we're involved. It's a global movement. So we're in yes. 18 different countries, or at least, maybe now 19. Romania starts up their first one this weekend, and we set up the one in Hungary like, two years ago or three years ago that's helping them. So it's always growing. But I don't know how many thousands now. It's almost impossible to count. And you've seen lives transformed. Our feedback, we actually asked a statistician to do some work on it because we couldn't remember anybody ever saying it wasn't life transformational for them. And sure enough, I think it came back as 99.8% of the feedback we've had over thousands of men has been, this is one of the pivotal, most life transforming moments of my, of my life. But we don't really know what to do with any of that because again, I guess for anyone listening at home, I think it's right to have a healthy level of skepticism towards this stuff because it all sounds so glossy when you come to the other end. Again, a bit like when your car is put back together at the MOT and it drives out and you think, ah, wonderful. It's the finished product. And maybe if they've cleaned it and you're lucky, you get in and think, this is perfect. It's like a new car. But actually, if you're, if you're struggling, if you're dirty, if you're feeling like you need an oil change or your tires are flat, seeing all these new cars rolling out is actually quite off-putting and can be a bit annoying. So what we try to do is not show too much of the new cars coming out, all of the success, if you like, all of the great stories, which we get thousands and hundreds and men are very, very kind. And even this morning, I read two more just, mm. but, but what we try and show is, but we're all, we've all spent some time in the garage. So let's sit in that moment for a bit. What's it like with oil dripping on the floor and the tires being flat with a smoky, smelly exhaust and a grumble that you're not sure what it is. We're all, we all need to go through that process at some time. And I think too often we want to present the, the, the glamour and not enough time spent in the pain to say, well, this is where the real work is. And I believe that's where God is, actually. In my experience, I've been lucky to be in some nice places. I told you a bit about that. I often don't feel much of God in some of those nice places, but I always feel him if I go into a prison or if I walk some streets where areas of poverty or areas that are difficult. I always see his kindness in him present when people are caring for people who are broken. And I think when we're broken, what we want to see is that someone's going to look after me. And so if, if men come in the mountains, we're not back rubby and massagey and hot chocolates and cocoa in bed, but we are kind. It's a tough kindness, but it's one that says we believe the best in you and we think you can do this. And there's more in you than you can ever imagine. So how do we tap into that? Absolutely. Well, you've been grappling with a lot of these issues, particularly relating to men. Uh, for all the men watching now, James, what, what would you say to them from your experience of 
having done this for years. And, you know, what do you feel God is trying to get through to men at the moment? Well, first of all, I'd say thanks for listening this far, because I think these things can be off-putting. And I understand that. I've been reluctant to come on because I feel sometimes that it can feel preachy. And I hope I haven't come across like that. And I know that John uh, is very kind as well. But I'd say to you that you're not alone. And if you need help, you need to get help. And it's unlikely you're going to find it yourself. There's a story about the blind leading the blind, and they both fall into a pit. I think in your case and in my case, we need each other. We need other men especially to help us. But also I'd encourage you to ask that big question again about why you're here, what's the point? Is there a God and does he love you? Does he care about you at all? And if you're confused or intrigued by any of those questions and you know there's things in you that you want to find some freedom from, some help, some things you want to change, then maybe this could be an experience that you would enjoy. Come away with us in the mountains, come away for four days on a mind, body, soul adventure and let's see what happens. Let's see uh, how you become the hero of your own story. And it's a warm invitation for me to you, but I appreciate it's one you'll need to think about and take seriously. So I encourage you to do that as well. How do you see your future, James? I am a visionary and I have lots of ideas about the future, but I have no idea about my own future and I quite like that. I think I try and take one day at a time. I try to do today, I've got this and I hope this helps someone. And then tomorrow there's something else I'm doing where I'm speaking, where I hope I can help them. And I think that um, each day is lived like that, that then suddenly the bigger picture becomes clear when we look backwards. But I don't really have a, any massive idea of what the future holds, other than I hope that I can be a bit more gentle. And I hope I can think of myself less every day so that I can be available to help people who are really struggling. That's really my hope. And we need to discover or rediscover that we've got a heavenly father who is perfect. Mm. So maybe our fathers weren't perfect and inconsistent and not what they should have been, but God is. And ultimately that's what you're trying to get through, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people ask why men only. We do actually run an event for women called Arise, but the primary focus of our attention is on men because we feel that men actually have some catching up to do generally. I mean, I certainly do. My wife challenged me yesterday that I need to become a kinder person and spend more time with God and my values and redeploying myself. And she's right. She's way ahead of me every time. Remember my story. Finally, she said, six months ahead of me at least. So I need to learn that. But also the reality is that I am by default, by being a male, I am a, a natural father anyway. I have children, but also I think I have a calling to be a father to other children in the community and other younger people. And I think I also have a need to be fathered um, and mothered, of course, as well. But for, for us as men, there's a specific thing around fathering and they call it the father wound. And many men swing like a pendulum. They don't want to be anything like their dad or they want to be exactly like him. And the problem is when we're swinging like this, we're constantly using that as our reference. But what I think we need to do is almost what you're saying about trying to find some stillness in the middle and say, who am I called to be? And what does that look like in terms of fathering for me and fathering for them? And how can I step in that role? And that's one of the reasons we take men specifically to try and reinstill that sense of empowerment in men to say, you need to be who you're made to be and then stand in that power, be that role in your community and live it kindly and live it graciously and gently. And you'll start to realize that your whole community changes. James, you're, you are a real inspiration. Uh, I like 
who you are and I like that you're a, a person who is passionate about the Lord, passionate about fulfilling his will in your life and um, and you're on, a, on an adventure. Thank you, James, for joining us on Facing the Canon. Thanks for having me. I really hope that's inspired you. I hope it's encouraged you. I hope it's infused in you a little bit more faith and hope and love. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. One doctor developed the world's first vaccine. One civil rights activist helped to end racial segregation in the USA. One botanist developed new farming practices supporting impoverished farmers. One former slave escorted 300 others to freedom. One watchmaker saved the lives of 800 Jews and refugees during World War II. One politician persisted to see slavery legally abolished in the UK. Faith, love, generosity, sacrifice, perseverance. Heroes of the Faith, the new coffee table book by J. John. Available now at canonjjohn.com.